Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premier manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. And now your hosts, Joey Surges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy. How's it going, guys? How you doing? Very good. How are you? I'm great. I just got back from Seattle, did a creative live which was really fun you know those those things are always a little bit nerve-wracking probably because i put myself through this you know you you try to think about it as much as you can and try to wrap your head around what you're teaching but uh i always drop the ball when it comes to actually planning the the actual course and um i usually end up winging it (laughs) as much as they'll let me How did you wing it this time? Well, we had we had um, some slides, right? We had like twenty five slides for the whole course. Damn, that's nothing. I know that's nothing, and I ended up using like maybe fifty percent of the slides because you had so much info that you didn't get to them. I think it just had so much content to share with people. Like when I would present an idea, it would take me a while to kind of explain everything about that idea. Like for example, guitars. A lot of people don't really know what EQ does to a guitar, and they don't know how EQ works. So not only do you have to share the different styles of mixing, because you've got replacement mixing where you're expected to build a guitar tone from scratch using a DI. Then you've got creative mixing where you're using the original guitar tone, but maybe you're also adding in your own reamp signal or you're making your own guitar tone to go with it. And then you've got production mixing where you're just only mixing the tone that's given. So it was interesting because I had to convey that idea and then also convey the idea of EQ is notes and frequencies and harmonies and octaves and harmonics and overtones. And then how the tools work. Except for 4K. Except for 4K. That's that's just completely eliminated <laughs> from the human hearing. Let's just... Let's just modify our ears so we can't hear 4K anymore. Told you I'm going to make that iPhone app that allows you to equalize life. So yeah, like you spend a lot of time diving into just one concept. And uh, the way that the slides were constructed, they just kind of guide me along and make sure I did things in a certain order. But I spent most of the course just winging it, man. Just literally like, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. It was in, It was still constructed. It was still structured. So what happens if you like, lose your track do they like throw things at you to keep you like you start going off on some tangent and they're like follow the slides do they like hold up a postcard or something like that i never really lose track of where i am except for when they toss it to the host and he's signing out and you're like zoning out at that point because you're like oh i'm done all right i'm just gonna sit here and zone out for a second and then all of a sudden he'll be like what are we gonna talk about next and then they point the camera at you and you're like oh shit um uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Next, we're talking about compressors. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See, that scares the shit out of me. I've always had way too many slides at every Creative Love I've done. Like, I think on my drum one, I had 180 slides or something like that. Fuck. Yeah. That's a lot. I do an insane amount of prep because my biggest fear is winging it. I mean, I know I could sit there and talk for a long time, but it just... You worry about the outcome. Yeah, I just, like, the lead-up to that Creative Live session would be so nerve-wracking for me that I might 
die from stress. So I like to uh, hear that. I like to have as much preparation as possible so that I can have as much peace of mind going into it as possible because it really is a nerve wracking experience anyways, no matter how much you prepare. Here's the thing. Now that you've revealed your supervillain vulnerability, now if you piss off anybody at Creative Live, they know how to defeat you. <laughs> oh, by hiding my slides? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Like, you want to kill AL? Now you know how. Hide his slides. Well, I think I could probably get by with less slides. I've done it before. It's just not as good for me. Yeah, I, I just prefer to kind of try and feel... I'll do a segment, maybe I'll say a paragraph, and then I'll feel one way about that. And then that allows me to kind of like guide the course. Maybe it ends up going in a direction that's a little bit different than how I originally thought of it. But based on everything that happened, I can kind of steer it in the correct way. Also, I kind of try and vibe out the questions and try to feel, you know, is the audience like totally lost or are they with me, you know, and kind of take it from there. You know, we didn't spend a whole ton of time on guitar at this Creative Live because it was about mixing. But tell me if you guys agree. I feel like a mix is kind of like, it's a lot of different things, but half of it does kind of rely on the guitar tone, especially when you're talking about metal. Absolutely. Guitar and drums. I'll give you like 40%. <laughs> it's very important. Yeah, I would say 40%, you know, 40%. It's hard to assign. And the bass kind of is a part of that too, because, you know, in the metal, bass is not always its own instrument um depends on the band you know job for cowboys new cd lots of interesting bass shit going on in there but then you know go to like the new attila record or something and the bass is just that low end power but actually on this faceless stuff just bringing that up because of our guests coming up on some of this faceless stuff they definitely have a lot of independent bass lines going on but yeah in general i agree with you and metal bass is an extension of the guitar by function and I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing always. Sometimes that's what it needs to be in order to sound best. Yeah, and I'm really interested to hear sort of the practices or techniques that our guest uses in the productions. And the, the guy we're talking about here is Michael Keane. So some of you might be familiar with him. He's in the band The Faceless. He also does some producing. What's a, what's a couple of bands he's worked with? He's been known to do work with Veil of Maya, Born of Osiris, Suicide Silence, and a whole host of other projects here and there you know, various bands through the years. He's always had a studio since I've known him. I've known him like five or six, seven years, something like that. I also know that he does a lot of guesting work on other people's projects. So he's just one of those talented dudes that kind of is good at a lot of different things. That's awesome. So yeah, let's bring him on. Let's start finding out some interesting stuff about bass and guitar. Cool. Let's do it. Welcome to the show, Michael. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing pretty good. We were just talking. Uh, I had not met you until a couple of years ago, South by So What, but AL's known you for a long time. Right. This is the first time you met Joel. I'm just curious, how long have you been playing guitar and how long have you been producing music in the studio? Well, I've been playing guitar for 20 plus years since I was a really, really young kid. My dad's a guitar player, so he got me started really, really young. He didn't really push me into it or anything, but you know, there was always guitars around the house and it was available and, and I took an interest to it very early. Um, and then same with recording. My dad's also a recording engineer. 
uh, there was always the, the gear around for me to, to record stuff. And when I was about um, 13, that's when I started recording my own songs that I was writing. And that's kind of what got me into it. By the time I was like 16, I was already producing records for my friends' bands in high school and stuff. And then uh, it just grew from there. How many hours a day were you spending on it when you were a kid? On production? Well, on music as a whole. Oh, man. When I was yeah, when I was in high school, there was, there was days I would ditch school and just play guitar all day, like 10 hours, you know? Wow. I wish I had that kind of commitment now. I definitely don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, as you get older, you know, you kind of stop doing stuff like that. But um, yeah, when I was young, I was, I, was, I was so hungry for it. I just couldn't get enough, you know? I think that's a key thing that every young listener to this needs to take away from this that it, while you're young that's the time to bust ass on your instrument definitely because you're not going to do it when you're getting older yeah. so basically as good as you're going to get by the age of 22 is probably as good as you're going to get <laughs> i mean there's some exceptions to that but by and large you're never going to have the commitment to give it six to ten hours a day yeah yeah what happens is you get a girlfriend and then she ruins everything for you and you know that's it i'm i'm lucky if i play 10 to 12 hours a month now but you do this pretty much as a profession now right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so that's the interesting thing is is how much actual prep work and dedication it takes to get to that position and then oh, okay now it's just like you know play for an hour or two for my show or whatever and that's your clock in clock out day job right but yeah like i've been playing guitar my dad plays guitar he's been playing guitar for i don't know 30 40 years or something um crazy like that and uh i felt like it was really helpful to know how a guitar works you know like guitars are not perfect instruments right so knowing how they operate and knowing what's possible with the instrument good and bad I think really helps out in the studio. And I think if there's anyone that's out there who's not super familiar with, if they don't know how to play guitar, I think they can struggle a bit in terms of recording it. So I'm just curious if you agree with that. Absolutely. I definitely do. And, you know, the the same goes for, um, I think, all instruments, really. You know, I've, I've also played drums since I was about nine or ten. And I think actually I mean certainly when I'm I'm programming drums or you know or especially when I'm producing a band and I'm talking to a drummer it absolutely helps that I actually play drums and I can sit behind the kit and I know all the idiosyncrasies of what a drummer would actually do or what they should play or what would be cool that is absolutely beneficial to uh, production and the same goes for guitar so important do you ever write parts for a drummer to play in real life like I know you've played with some of the best of the best drummers do you just let them write or do you write for them or you know somewhere in the middle of that uh usually with the faceless for instance I write the drums I I have them maybe like you know 85% where I want them to be like you know if it's gonna be you know whatever a blast beat this kind of blast beat or that kind of blast beat I have it there I have how I want it to be I have the fills pretty much how I want them to be more or less and then from there I let the drummer come in and put their own flavor on it and we just kind of go through it part by part and we either agree on a part or I'll go "Eh, I don't know about that or whatever and we just get through it until it's done but you know I mean playing drums has definitely been beneficial to that a lot of people don't have that 
that luxury, unfortunately. But uh, you know, I actually even uh, played some drums. Like I played drums on on our uh, our demos, and I played drums on our first record, even. So I always have a hand in in that kind of stuff, and it helps with making suggestions for bands I'm producing and stuff too. You know, and not writing parts that are completely unrealistic, right? Like. Dr. Octopus. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah, I call them Dr. Octopus drum parts. Yeah, I know I know a lot of people that produce <laughs> or they uh they program drums or whatever and and you're going like as a drummer you're just going, "Yeah, there's no way that that's possible. You can't you can't do that." Oh, I hate that. <laughs> can't hit the snare and the china and a crash and the hi-hat <laughs> and a floor tom all at the same time. Right. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah. You're going to do a blast beat on the snare but then do a tom roll while you're still blasting. Yeah. <laughs> and and also, you know, aside from the Dr. Octopus effect, also I find it's really really beneficial. This is the one thing I've noticed big time. People that don't play drums, they don't understand the dynamics of drums. And a lot of times they're very unrealistic in their dynamics of the drums. You know, like a blast beat comes and it's rim shotting or something, you know? I mean, there's 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 only so much uh, that a drummer can do physically and actually playing drums when you're sitting there drawing in the velocities, it really helps to go like, okay, I know how hard this little ghost note or whatever would actually be or i know how hard to draw in the velocities for this fill because i can actually play that fill you know well that inspires a question so when you're dealing with drummers okay so if i'm mixing a death metal song or whatever and a guy's doing a blast beat it's always been interesting to me because i always ask my drummers i'm like well hey you know what do you want your blasts to sound like do you want them really brutal like rim shots which is not possible right some guys are like it's got to sound like metal right or you want it dynamic um do you ever find you run into issues like that where drummers they want it a certain way and you're like why that's stupid yeah oh yeah totally i've definitely i've definitely had those conversations with drummers where you know they want something quantized 100 percent velocities all at 127 i'm going you know that this totally sounds fake right like you know that this is not how drums actually sound when you play them at all you know <laughs> you just kind of have to meet somewhere in the middle i guess you know i think there's entire um genres of music based on that sound oh yeah which is really really interesting yeah. um like <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i mean it's kind of crazy people just don't care anymore i mean i don't know if it's that they're just totally out of touch with what a drum kit actually sounds like anymore or they just don't care what it is but but yeah you're right there is whole genres that are just completely they don't care at all if all of the velocities are 127 and and the drums don't actually sound like a real drum kit in any way you know you know what else is interesting about that is from a mixing perspective, you know, you'll go out in the forums and then some mixer that, you know, a lot of kids like will put out something that's a little bit more on the natural side. Like you can tell the band was like, yeah, you know, we want it mixed more natural, like more real drums, less sampled, you know, like, and then everybody's like, this mix sucks. Why did he make yeah. such a shitty mix? This is bullshit. And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, as a mixer, sometimes you do what you're told. <laughs> I mean, right. Totally. Well, I've had a situation quite a few times, and this is especially with younger bands bands that grew up with the modern sound of heavy music as their stuff not guys like me who came up with older music and grew to like newer music just because we like newer music but um 
uh, lots of these older band I mean, younger bands will come in and say they want a natural sound, blah, blah, blah. And then you give them that and they think it sounds like shit. And then you throw on the samples and single shot samples and they're happy. That's what they actually want. Yeah, yeah. People have kind of lost touch with what a natural recording actually sounds like, I think, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree. Well, we had uh, Kurt Ballou on this month. Oh, he makes great natural recordings. Yeah, exactly. He's, I think he's holding the torch for natural recordings. But that's the thing. That's what natural heavy music pretty much sounds like when it's done well. It sounds kind of nasty and grimy. Mm-hmm. You're not going to get a natural sounding record to be as pristine as some of these people want. And so I think that people need to maybe sometimes ditch the idea of totally natural. Yeah. If they also want it totally clean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, going back to what you're saying with, you know, bands coming in and having a sort of a preconceived notion of what they want something to sound like, whatever, I find. The bands that I work with, a lot of times, it's me that's wanting to kind of push it more in the natural direction, and it's them that's wanting it to be a little more over the top, you know, and I usually am kind of catering to their wishes. Well, you are in the service industry when recording another band. Right. Well, the thing is, though, is you have a responsibility to keep the craft going in a certain direction, right. I think. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, like AL just said, it's a service industry. So, you know, you get the customer that doesn't want to go that direction. Right. Then what do you, you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. You kind of have to, in a way, you kind of have to choose to work with like-minded bands that sort of want what you offer. You know, you have to be careful of that. Yeah. I think that's a luxury that guys who have had some success in their life can enjoy but right right i think for a lot of our audience they're lucky to get bands in the first place sometimes um at least some of them we're in pretty good contact with our audience so we've got a good feel for what their challenges and situations are and you know a lot of them are just happy to be recording in the first place so they don't they haven't gotten to the point where they can really be turning work away like they're just trying to get work in the first place so right. i think it's a lot more of a challenge for them because they can't be turning people down um for me that seems like an almost impossible situation because what do you do if you're not working with like-minded people which way do you go do you make them happy or yourself happy. Yeah. I'm curious if you have advice for people who might be in that situation where they're struggling to find like-minded clients, you know, clients that fit within the uh, overall goal of what they would like to do with their career. Do you have any advice for those people? Where could they look? What could they do? Well, you know, um, it's hard to say. You know, I'm very lucky in the sense that I was able to make a calling card out of my own band's productions, which allowed me the luxury of doing whatever I wanted, you know, not only being able to cut my teeth doing that, but also kind of going like, well, this is when I make a recording the way I want it, this is how it is. So, you know, here's what I offer, you know, and and people kind of came to me on that basis, you know, which which is a luxury that I realized a lot of people don't have, I guess. If you do have a band of your own or whatever, I think recording your own band and using that as as a tool for getting your work will probably draw more like-minded 
artists or bands that want to work with you. I agree with that, actually. And I think that most of the people that I know that are wanting to be professional engineers are also musicians. Yeah. It's very rare these days to have just a standalone engineer. Like you used to have those quite often, but I feel like nowadays they're musicians slash engineers. I have also been able to get cool clients because of my own music, because people liked what I did with my own music with guitar right. and all that. And, you know, my band never got that big or anything, but I guess we got enough notoriety to where it helped my studio career. So I can just echo that sentiment that if you want a certain type of client and that certain type of client would possibly be attracted to the kind of music you make, then one of the things you can definitely do is push your own music as hard as possible in terms of quality and exposure. Yeah, and really use the recording of your own music. Kind of think about that when you're recording it. Go like, what do I want to present as you know, as an engineer, as a producer, what do I want to present, you know, as my gamut, you know, as my spectrum as a producer? That definitely could work for people. I feel like even if they don't get into a successful band or say their band doesn't become successful, they can use that as a calling card via the internet right. as well. Like, cause there are plenty of guys like, you know, we know Drews of Stalin and all kinds of dudes like that who are just badass guitar players who are pretty good at recording too, who put up their own videos and clips of what they do. And even that alone with the power of the internet can definitely help your career. Yeah. So I guess when you're in that, that unique situation, which I see that as an extremely valuable situation. And I, I look at my own situation, being able to work with artists firsthand basis and then build audio products that solve problems that are directly faced in the studio like that's a very fortunate situation to be in so i'm thinking you know how do you figure out you know the best way to divide your time between making music and recording other people like you know your own career the things that you're doing for your band versus you know other bands and because it is i mean it is slightly competitive sure (laughs) sure um you know for me i think all along my band or at least my own music has kind of always been my top priority and i I would say there was a time that i really was driven to uh do as much production as i possibly could do as many records for as many people as i possibly could um and then at a certain point i actually started kind of going crazy it was just too much and and uh you know when i would get off of tour i'd go right into making a record and then it was right back out on tour and then home making a record for myself or you know and then another record for somebody else and it was just just like man i need some time to just like kind of decompress when I come home. Sounds like make your head explode. Yeah, yeah. And it was just it was just too much and I was I was <laughs> I was losing it, you know. I was a nervous wreck all the time and just stressed out. And I actually told myself, okay, I'm not going to do any records for anyone for like a year. And I didn't, and it ended up being even a little bit longer than a year. And then when I came back to it, 
ever since then, I've just kind of taken the approach that I only do a few records a year. That's it. I'll maybe do one or two records for other bands a year, and that's it. And then everything else is just sort of my own music, my band, that kind of stuff. And I feel like, for me, that's a good balance. Yeah, we always speak about balance on here because it is so easy to get completely encapsulated in, you know, you can record band after band after yeah. band no days in between like no weekends like no holidays oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's bad yeah tell me about it <laughs> you will burn yourself out i'll give you a perfect example so last week i took off for four days right plus the weekend and every single day i came in at 8 p.m and i worked till two in the morning even though i was off all day getting up at 5 a.m <laughs> and um some vacation well you know you have deadlines and sometimes you bite off more than you can chew and you don't realize it's going to be so much work. And then you're like, holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. That was my basically 2011 through 2014. Uh, I think there was an 11 month stretch where there were no days in between bands staying in my guest room in my house. Oh geez. Yeah. It got insane. I definitely had to pull back a little just for sanity's sake. So totally understand that. So with these two records a year you do now, I bet you can approach those totally fresh and with maximum creativity and enthusiasm. Absolutely. I think I think it actually improved my production in a big way because I didn't have for one thing I wasn't a nervous wreck, you know, and and um I didn't have a million things going on in my head. I could just kind of be relaxed and focus on the one record and and it just I don't know just everything just started kind of coming together a lot better when I started approaching it that way. I think that's a great point for people that are interested in having optimal peak performance when doing something. If you have too much shit and too many things that you're multitasking, it distracts you, but you when you only focus on one thing at a time, you're usually a lot more creative and a lot more involved. And every time I have 10 things going on when I'm, you know, mixing a record, working on a product, producing another record. It, it's too much. Like you go nuts. It's hard to jump from back and forth. But when you only have one or two things going on, usually you're a lot more focused and a lot more creative and productive at the same time. It's both an intellectual strain and an emotional strain, because if you get behind on something, anybody who's a high achiever doesn't like being behind on stuff. And so you feel that internally. Um, and either you feel guilty or you feel pissed, but it's never a good one. And if that piles up, uh, those negative emotions are going to spill into the work you are doing, which will lower the quality of your work. There's no real winning scenario to overloading yourself like that. I agree. In my opinion. It's hard to do too, because you know when you're running a business, sometimes you're like, all right, well, I want to take everything and anything I can. So you want to keep your you know, you're booked to make sure you have something going on four to six months from now. And it's easy to take on too much. And like you said, all of a sudden you have no gaps and then you're behind two weeks and you're behind a month and then everybody's freaking out and you're freaking out. And it's, it's just a dark cyclone of terror. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it gets harder the, the more successful you get on four, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder because then everyone is on these time schedules with their labels and touring schedules and and you're on your own schedule you know if you have a band of your own and everything has to be done faster and and also then you're dealing with bands flying in from other places a lot more so you don't have the luxury of days off when you're doing that you know you get a band that flies in and they go okay well we're going to come out for you know 
15 days or something. Okay, we're working for 15 days straight, no days off, 12 hours a day in the studio till it's done, you know, and that's a whole other ball of stress to deal with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's brutal. Well, you need breaks to be productive. Yeah. With 15 days, I would definitely be taking no days off. Yeah. God. Yeah. That, that sounds stressful in and of itself, just having 15 days. Yeah. I mean, that's not a good example. Usually if I was doing a record, I'd tell them now you need to come more than 15 days, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Those situations do pop up where a band goes, we have 15 days to do this or whatever, you know? And sometimes you go, well, okay, let's do it. You know? And you get yourself into these crazy situations you know whatever because it's a good opportunity or because you want to stay booked or whatever it may be you know it's very hard to say no yeah i I have a very very hard time with turning anything down it's like self-inflicted pain like you know it's gonna (laughs) suck but you do it anyways and then you keep doing it and you're like and then you (laughs) i think i've been through enough bad situations to where To, to say yes is a very heavy thing, like, yeah. for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> Sounds like someone needs time off. <laughs> yeah, I definitely weigh it very carefully. I do, too, now. You know, I, after the same thing, after making some monumental errors that, you know, got me into a situation where I was hating life and just driving myself insane, I definitely learned to say no. Yeah, I think learning to say no is one of the most positive things you can do in your career. But at the same time, I think that saying no too early in your career is a career killer. Absolutely. For instance, that band that won the battle for Sumerian uh, last year or this year and then turned down the deal and went public about why they didn't like the deal (laughs) and just made asses out of themselves. Like I've known bands throughout the years who get an opportunity and turn it down because they think they're smart, and then that's the only opportunity they ever got. Or producers who, you know, get too big for their britches and turn things down they really shouldn't be turning down, and then they don't get those opportunities again. So I also think that while saying no is one of the best things you can do for the longevity of your career, you also need to be keenly aware of where you're at in your career and assess whether or not saying no is actually an intelligent move because I think that one thing that we all share and that everyone who's experienced any success shares is that there is a point in time where you do need to book yourself solid absolutely and just grind it out just like on guitar yeah you don't practice much anymore I don't practice much anymore lots of dudes don't practice much anymore but you still grinded it out when you were young right so did I everybody does you do have to put in the time at some point while you're coming up. Yeah. Speaking of guitars, it is guitar month. Maybe you want to talk about uh, your guitar recording process, maybe? Sure, yeah. On the last Faceless record, I actually ended up using an amp sim, which is sort of uncharacteristic of me. But, you know, I've gotten more into it lately. But generally speaking, I, I usually always track with an amp sim. It makes it so much easier, you know, dealing with getting a tone or whatever and then uh, also with editing obviously you know like it's easier to to you know just record one di track than to have you know pull up a uh, a guitar tone and print a uh, an amp and a di line for editing on top of it so i usually 
always track with an amp sim and then I go back and reamp after the fact unless there's some special circumstance or something. You know, I've got I've got a collection of cool heads and I used to have a lot more cabinets than I have now. I had to get rid of a lot. I used to have like almost 20 guitar cabinets. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a storage nightmare. And now I'm down to about 4, which is plenty. How many of those would you actually use though? Oh, well, see, a lot of them were duplicates of the same thing. But, you know, realistically, I I was always pulling out the same three or four, which is why I've narrowed it down to four. What are your favorite ones and which speakers are in them? One of my favorite cabs that I record all the time, and it's a cab that I've used live a lot as well, is uh, it's a Randall cab and it's loaded with Eminence 100s. Something about it, man, it just has so much headroom. It never gets nasty. It never bottoms out. It seems to work well with whatever heavy tones I throw through it. And, uh, I also have a great 212 EVH cab. I always have good luck tracking 212s. I don't know if you guys find that at all. I've done both. Something about 212s, it just kind of tightens things up. And I don't know, it just sits really well in a mix for me. There's like less low mid-range. Like I'm, I'm trying to think and compare. I have a Mesa 212 and a Mesa standard Recto 4x12 in the other room. And... You know, like the difference between those other than the small speaker variance is usually like a little bit of like 200-ish in that area. There's like a little bit of more of like the low mid weight. Yeah, I've played around with um, a t- two two by 12 impulses versus four by 12 impulses. And I, I found even in the impulse realm, they could be tighter sounding. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? I think it's actually exaggerated in the, the impulse realm and, and with, you know, amp sims and stuff. I think that characteristic of the tightness of the 212 really, really is evident there, you know, and I, especially when I'm doing any kind of amp sim stuff or, or, um, I'm using any sort of speaker emulation. I always seem to gravitate towards the 212 for some reason. Now, I heard you uh, you don't play with super high gain. I'm curious, do you find that that's crucial for the tight sound? There's a lot of people with the misconception out there that think, you know, more gain's heavier guitar tone. And it's kind of the opposite, really. Right. I agree. Yeah. I think, you know, especially if you're looking for clarity, tightness, you know, control of your sound, all that stuff, that definitely comes through lower gain. There's a there's a threshold with gain, you know, you get to a certain point and it's not really going to get any heavier by adding more gain. All it's going to do is maybe it'll add sustain, which, you know, then in turn makes it a little bit easier to play. But that usually is kind of like a sloppiness thing, you know. If, <laughs> if you can if you can pl- if you can play it right, you know, then back off the gain and it's going to sound a lot cleaner, a lot more controlled. I call it guitar center syndrome, where you <laughs> walk in there and the kid's raging on like the line six insane mode, and it sounds like he can shred. <laughs> and then you hand him, you know, he walks over to the Marshall and starts playing, and you just start laughing. You're like, dude, you're missing eighty percent of the notes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that even when you add more gain to get that sustain there's still a threshold beyond that to where all you start adding is to the signal yeah Yeah, just noise white noise and i think with recording though versus live there's definitely a, a point where you're trying to just make the performance presentable and get the tone to a point where you can kind of like counterbalance your ability to perform the part perfectly to just getting it presentable and having it not sound like shit but in the studio like everything has to be perfect because that shit's in there recorded forever right so for me it'd be trivial to be like okay let's uh 
you know, let's increase the gain because we need more sustain. No, hold the cord better, like with your hand. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, try it again. You know, it's not a, a, a live situation. So it's like, if you fucked it up, do it again. You know, that's yeah. that's the luxury of the studio. Do it again and turn the gain down a little bit. You know, you guys are making the assumption the musician can even play it in the first place. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, that brings up the question when you're recording. I mean, obviously, you know how to play guitar. So that's not an issue when it comes to your own music. But when you're recording other people, at what point do you decide that you're going to just play the guitar for them? Always. <laughs> <laughs> No, he records some pretty good guitarists, so... Yeah, yeah. When the editing gets to a point where it's taking so much longer than, you know, just getting takes would you know like it because obviously we all know that if if you if you play it perfectly it's going to be faster than editing it but you know you kind of cater to other people and you know you do you sit there and you do editing whatever to get their part perfect when it gets to the point where it's like man even with editing this still sounds like shit that that's that's usually where i kind of draw the line and i'm like you know you you want me to take a stab at this or well, what about palm muting because for me that's the one i always get absolute batshit crazy over oh yeah it's pick attack for me because the way the kids are, they're not picking hard enough or they're not picking with their hand in the right position on the bridge and they're not getting the optimal tone and sometimes they can get away with being a crappy guitar player on the chordal stuff but when they start chugging away and a riff with I go nuts. I'm like, give me the damn guitar. I'll punch in all the chugs. Here you go. Get out. <laughs> totally. Totally. I get so angry with palm muting. Palm muting can be such a fine art too. You can sit there and palm mute the same thing 10 times in a row and go, okay, this one is how I wanted it to sound. And each one is different in its own exactly. way. You, know, yeah. you really have to kind of, one, you have to know what you're listening for. You know, you, you have to really know what you're wanting and then two you have to learn how to actually achieve it you know now if you don't play guitar how do you actually convey that sort of thing you know because it's like i'm a guitar player we're all guitar players to some degree and imagine if you just like sang right and then you started being a producer you know how do you know what a good palm mute sounds like i often wonder how challenging that must be yeah, it really must be, you know. I don't I don't know, man. I don't I don't have the answer to that, you know. I think I think it's sort of uh it goes without saying that you're going to be a better producer if you're a musician, especially if you play the instrument you're producing, you know. Do you guys know any heavy music producers that don't play some guitar? Like I know Colin Richardson is not a guitarist. Yeah, that's I was actually going to say Colin Colin Richardson yeah. is the only one I can think of. That's the only one I can think of. So he just has superhuman powers. He's a statistical outlier, so he doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, he is definitely a statistical outlier. Genius. And he's also from another era right. where stuff wasn't recorded the way it is now. I think that's a big part of it. But I'm trying to think if any of the modern dudes that I know personally or that I know of don't play at least some guitar to some degree, and I can't think of anybody. I can't either. I've always said that to be a good producer, you need to learn as many different instruments as possible. You don't need to be a virtuoso, but enough to where you have some understanding of how they work and how to sound good on them. Otherwise, how are you going to do it, especially for music like this where it's highly technical and highly specific? How how on earth are you supposed 
going to understand it. I don't know how I would approach understanding it without playing guitar. I agree. And also the idiosyncrasies of the instruments, you know, aside from all of that, you know, just how a pickup's going to interact with a guitar cabinet or, you know, how uh your cymbals are going to react with your drums when you put a mic on the drum you know all those things like it's actually being with the instrument and playing it gives you so much more insight into all those things yeah absolutely so let me ask you this do you play bass much i do yeah do you usually track the bass on records you record uh, it depends, you know. I mean, I certainly have. I recorded bass on a Veil of My album, you know, and uh, actually, I don't know if they wanted me to say that. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> actually, no. I th- yeah, I there was no one listed as as playing bass on it. So I, yeah, I mean, it was there was no bass player at the time. So, and you know, I've I've certainly done it. And then of course, there's the countless times that I'm sure we've all. Uh, encountered the uh shitty bass player that is buried live and uh you have to go back and replace everything they did or most of what they did when they leave oh my god (laughs) Uh, i feel like that in itself could be a podcast of stories (laughs) well i feel that that's the most common instrument that i end up replacing personally right absolutely me too yeah bass beyond everything else but i mean you've had some really really killer bassists in your own band Right, I've been really lucky in that regard, yeah. When you're working with someone who's just like a shredder on bass and wants to keep things busy, how do you keep their parts... Musical. (laughs) Yeah, how do you keep it from overtaking everything? I'm looking for an answer that's talking about mix-wise, but also arrangement-wise, because we've all heard that prog local band that has the bass player who wants to be a guitar player who's sweeping constantly, and it just sounds like total shit. (laughs) But on the other hand, we've got your stuff where you've had crazy bass, and it still sounds cool. Yeah, you know, I've been pretty lucky that... When I started The Faceless and, and like all through high school, my partner in crime was always Brandon, our bass player, and we sort of like, we kind of cut our musical teeth together. He's such an amazing bass player and such an amazing musician, and I always felt like we really got on a wavelength together that was really in tune, and he was never the bass, he always could play real busy, and, and but it was always tasteful, and it wasn't, he wasn't trying to play guitar, he always played bass, which was really important to me, and you know, I've played with other bass players who play busy, and I always go, that's a really cool part, but who's going to play bass, you know, <laughs> and, and you know, I kind of always go back to that, I can't tell you how many bands I've said that to also, you know, I go, yeah, that's, that's really cool but who's gonna play bass if you're playing that what do you mean bro and you know it's it's yeah it's it's definitely uh an art in itself coming up with musical bass parts that uh you know they they can be busy you know but they're bass parts you know a lot of a lot of uh bassists want to play guitar and they play they play the guitar part or they play something that's like a lead or whatever it's like you can play busy but you still play bass, you know, you have to, the whole concept of playing bass is you're outlining the key centers. So outline the key centers and do it busy if you want to play busy, but, you know, play bass. And uh, that's definitely something that um, I have made a strong point to be aware of so that I can tell bass players, you know, like, this is kind of where you need to go if you're gonna if you want to play that busy or whatever. As far as mix is concerned, you know I think a big part of it is 
leaving room for the bass. A lot of people have a tendency to put too much, I feel like, anyway, they put too much low end in the guitars, which doesn't leave room for the bass, you know, or a lot of it is sculpting your your bass drum and stuff, you know, to where there's room for the bass. And also, I personally, I don't know if you guys would agree with me on this, but I kind of feel like there's a low mid area in the bass that a lot of times is taken for granted or actually like cut out which is really detrimental if you want to actually hear what the bass is doing clearly, you know? Absolutely. Bass is sort of, it's definitely an afterthought in most metal, unfortunately. You know, it's it's sort of just like there as a, um, because it has yeah. to be, I yeah. guess. You know, like more so than because it's really being highlighted or anything. I want to make a distinction, though, because I feel like there's a difference between an afterthought and something that's a lower extension of the guitars because sometimes it makes perfect sense for the bass to play the guitar line sure and just be like the sub basically the sub and the growl of a guitar sound you know like if it's a pattern part you know there's just tons of parts where playing the same thing as a guitar is the right musical decision absolutely so i want to just make the distinction between that and bass as an afterthought because i think bass as an afterthought is where you play the same thing as the guitar because you can't think of anything else no yeah you're absolutely right there's lots and lots of you know maybe half the time even on some songs where playing what the guitar is playing is the right thing to do absolutely i'm not saying that you shouldn't do that because that's obviously the right thing to do a lot of the time sure but it definitely is an instrument that it just gets the short end of the stick in this genre a lot but i feel (laughs) like i feel like it's the hidden weapon to mixes absolutely yeah man if you've got a killer bass tone it can really bring a whole production to life you know in a way that that makes it very unique it's always baffled me how metal like real metal guys make metal records with bass because I'm a rock guy predominantly. So for me, bass is everything like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to name drop Nickelback. So everybody plug their ears and pretend I didn't say that, but imagine a Nickelback record without bass. Like there's literally 60% of the mix, like all of the balls, all of the punch, everything comes from that low end or a breaking Benjamin or, you know, it's all about bass. So it's like, sometimes when I hear metal records, I'm like, dude, sounds really wimpy and thin yeah i agree man (laughs) i agree totally you know going back to what we were talking about busy bass parts in metal another thing that i've had to you know talk to bassists about is when you play real busy on bass it's inherently going to get lost easier in the mix Uh, when you simplify your bass parts they're going to stand out more I mean if you actually think about it on like a frequential level when you're dealing with frequencies that are so much lower they're moving slower so it actually takes more time to to get to your ears than the other things and because of that if you're playing like double the speed it's just going to get lost let me ask you a question based off that because i'm thinking about things like breakdowns right where you have like 16th or 32nd notes where you got like a like a burst usually i'll tell the bass player to play eighth notes there because if the kick pattern goes and the bass player goes da 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 I mean, it only plays three notes instead of five or whatever, you know, whatever it is. 
usually I feel like it sounds like the bass, even though the bass part is playing half of the hits. It sounds like I do the exact same thing. I do the exact same thing as well. Same here. Well, I'm glad that <laughs> we all agree because that's something I've always done. I'm like, man, you know, when the bass plays along with it, it just sounds like muddy. But, you know, because you lose that low end movement. So I take it a step further because my the way my bass tracks are set up, it's two tracks. So there's one track for all the low end and one track for all the mid-range and the high end the low track will sometimes be a little different than the high track i do that too yeah the high track might might play all of those hits that hits but but the low end just maybe plays a single note or two notes or whatever to just make that you know because when the bass note starts and ends you might have an envelope so more envelopes mean less bass, right? So it all depends on, you know, what you're trying to capture. I do that as well because in some mixes, I find that the top end of the bass where I distort it with a sans amp or whatever, or just kind of want that growl to come through, I need that to be playing along with the kick or it'll sound incomplete if it doesn't. So I do have that part of it play the pattern, but then... If you do that for the low end, you run into that same problem that you guys were talking about, that it sounds like mud, and there ends up being less low end. So actually, I've done that exact same thing. It's it's a great way to uh, achieve the goal. Yeah, It's always interesting when, you know, you talk about stuff like this and certain techniques, you're like, you know, you come up with some technique, and then you don't know if anybody else does it, and then you find out everybody else is doing it, and everybody came to it organically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard anyone else talk about that. I just thought... I thought I was the only one who did that and that it was wrong. <laughs> Cat's out of the bag now. It'll be all over all the forums. <laughs> a lot of the times I, I tell bass players, you know, rhythmically do, you know, right hand stuff, do half of what whatever the bass drum or the guitar is doing. And it definitely tightens everything up. You know who I actually had a conversation with that about a long time ago? And he was the one that actually pointed out that the frequencies move slower, so it takes more time to get to your ear. It's actually your buddy James Malone. We had a conversation about that years ago. Oh, dude. Talk about a brilliant motherfucker. Yeah, totally. God, he's so good at guitar. So, yeah, it's kind of kind of an interesting, interesting idea. So what do you use live? What are you playing through live, and what are you playing through in the studio, um, like head-wise and cab-wise? Uh, you know, get a load of this. Actually, the last, I guess, almost two years now, you know, so many bands are... We're all using computers in our setup now to run click tracks and backing tracks and stuff right so i kind of took it to the next level and you know and some bands they even have midi running to change the channels on their amps or whatever and you know whatever else light shows whatever and so i kind of decided to take it to the next level i had used amp sims on our most recent record and so i took all the sounds that i had made for the record all the different patches and I loaded them into the sessions that I was running for our backing tracks and our click and everything. And I sequenced everything out so that I wouldn't have to hit any any pedals, you know, wouldn't have to do any changes or anything. Uh, I was actually using Waves GTR. I don't know. I, I have I have all the you know the major ones, Revolver, you know, all the all the stuff, whatever. But for whatever reason, I keep going back to GTR. I just really like it. It just sounds good for me. It's interesting that you bring that up because we asked in our subscribers only forum if they have any questions for you, and so we have some questions here from our crowd, and a few of them asked why you use Waves GTR. You know, one guy said. 
YWAS GTR. I think it's a pretty cool plugin, but would personally never rely on it during live shows. Another person, Terry Thornton, has said, Waves GTR, I really enjoyed the guitar tone on the last album. I have that amp sim, and it's actually pretty cool, but I haven't really been able to get that sound out of it. What's interesting is I've talked to quite a few people that say that, and I don't really have a solid answer for them. You know, I've, I've actually talked to some guitar players that, you know, are in touring bands that, you know, they... they said hey like what what's the deal with gtr man i'm trying to i'm trying to get uh a tone pulled up but i can't seem to get it sounding the way that you got it sounding and i'll actually send them you know i sent a couple friends a preset and when they pulled it up they went oh wow that that sounds way different than what i was doing i think a big part of it is is uh using the big boy one with the two heads and everything because i combined two two sounds on top of (laughs) each other i think that's a big part of it and going through all the different cabs you know like also, you know, turning off the cab and putting your own impulse responses actually can really make it sound awesome as well. So that's that's another thing I would I would say try. But um, I don't know, man. For whatever reason, I just got some sounds out of it that I really liked. And I'm sure we all know this and we all have, you know, told people this a million times, obviously. But there's no right or wrong. It's just, you know, you you find things that you like and you just start gravitating towards them, you know. And we all have our things that we just use consistently because you know that you can work with them well and they work well for you, you know. And uh, for whatever reason, I just got some good tones out of GTR I liked, and uh, I used them for the record. Once I used them for the record, I figured, well, if I'm going to do this live, I'm going to use the exact same sounds from the record, so it sounds exactly the same. And, you know, all I did was I, I just dialed a little bit of the high end off so that it would translate to live a little bit better, and uh, just dropped all my presets right into the session, and uh, it worked out really well. It's cool. You know, I totally understand what you're saying, because I feel the same way about Line 6 products. I've used them for ages, and even when everybody thought they sucked, I always managed to get really good results with them. Yeah. Meshuga used to use them and right. get great results with them, and that was always what I would say to people was, Look, if they use it and sound great, I'm getting great results with it. It's not the gear. It's it's the brain right. using the gear. And I'm not saying I'm great or anything. I'm just saying that for some reason, I figured out how to make it work for me. And it may not work for everyone, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with the particular gear. It's just whatever you make work for you. I don't know of any totally. actual amp sims. Well, I know a couple that suck, but... I don't think that too many of them that are out there suck so bad. I think it's just a preference thing, like which one is going to work best for you. Talking about Line 6, you know, I've heard records that I've listened to them and gone, man, this sounds really good. And then somebody goes, yeah, they did this on a pod. And I'm like, really? A pod? Wow. You know, and you would never guess. It's just like you said, it's the person working it. It's not the gear. You know, you can people people can pull up their signature tone with just about anything. I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that rule, but for the most part, you know, you can kind of get your tone out of anything. Here's a great example is John Brown from Monuments. Mm-hmm. He's a phenomenal guitar player and he's got great tone and he's a Pod HD Pro dude. 
That's all he uses. Yeah, there you go. With very, very low gain. And a lot of people don't understand how it's possible. And I think a lot of it also has to do with the kind of stuff that we were talking about before. It's the nuance of being a good guitar player. Right. You know, if you got your hands right, you can pretty much use any piece of gear. Yeah, totally. I agree. Hey, I love Wave GTR. I think it's actually not terrible. <laughs> Joel, you use GTR? Yeah, I do sometimes. I've never used it in a mix, but when I was doing some impulses and stuff back in the day with Joey, I used GTR a lot, actually. And I kind of just like the interface and it's really easy and fast. and Very fast. Like, I love Podfarm. I hate to say it because I'm one of those tube amp dickhead purist guys, but um, I really do like Pod Farm. I've used it a ton, but I hate the interface of it. Like the interface really irritates me. I really like the interface of GTR. Yeah. It's just simple. I don't know. It, maybe it's a workflow thing. I've actually used it too. And uh, uh, Jay Rustin likes Waves GTR as well. So, uh, and he's pretty great. To answer the question of why Waves GTR in the simplest way possible, most of the other amp sim stuff that i pull up sometimes i'll sit there and i'll i'll mess with settings for you know 45 minutes or something and i completely lose touch with whether it even sounds good you know i'll, I'll go i'll go does this even sound good i don't know you know I've, I've my ears are fatigued you know i step back and come back to it i'm like and now I'm way off base with this, you know, what, for whatever reason, I could just pull up GTR and in like five minutes have a cool tone and then re I'm ready to go. That's how I feel about X effects. It's like so many parameters. Yep. You can sit there for hours and make it different, but not necessarily make it better. I agree. And after, yeah, after 90 minutes, you're like, wow, yeah, that definitely sounds different than how I started, but it sounds yeah. like shit. Selection paralysis, you know, you get stuck because there's too many options. You sit there and you tweak and you tweak and you tweak. But when you have something that's really simple, you just kind of like, okay, cool. All right. Sounds good. Moving on. But that's what I like about the line six stuff as well is the simplicity. And uh, just to take that a step further, when I'm using plugins, for instance, the plugins that I find myself going back to the most typically are very simple in their GUI um, because I get, I get scared of plugins that are too complicated like stuff where there's too much going on where i have to think about it too much to get the result i end up just not gravitating towards those i like things that you can dial quickly and get the result quickly and move on with your I agree. creative experience yeah generally as a rule i would say that the longer I spend messing with something, it usually doesn't make it better. It's usually actually diminishing, if anything, after a certain point, you know? Well, like five to 10 minutes? Yeah, yeah, around there. Joey, what's your threshold with that? My threshold, I think, is pretty short. For me, I'm very impatient uh, when it comes to that. So I'll also, I like to come back to things. I do too. I like to get somewhere and just be like, ah, oh, it's, you know. It's good enough for now. Come back to it, and with fresh ears or with a different perspective, you know, you find that you can make it even better. Like, I, I, I think I describe my process as more of a molding. I'm not, like, you know, fabricating it. I'm, I'm doing this a little this way, okay, a little less that, a little more this, and over time, it becomes you know, the final sounds. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's more objective that way too. Yeah, absolutely. But, but Joey, like I, I understand the molding part, but, um, and definitely I mold stuff 
for a while, you know, over the course of the week or two that I'm mixing something or, you know, or the course of the whole album. But I just mean in that initial getting the tone, you know, those first 10 minutes with the tone. I feel like if you don't have it even like decent within five to 10 minutes, maybe it's time to change the plugin or the sound altogether or something. For me, at least, uh, that's where I start to lose my mind. Yeah, and I think that goes back to the concept that we say, you know, it starts at the source. Um, right, totally. I was going to say the same thing. Yeah. yeah, it's like if you choose a kick drum and it's just not, like, let's say you're doing sample replacement, you choose a kick drum, it's not working out in your song, and you just keep trying to EQ it more and more, and you keep putting stupid compressors on it and stuff, just pick a different kick drum. It's not the right one, right. you know? totally. And it might, it might take a while to find it. And same thing with guitar tones, you know? It can take... You can produce the first four songs and have a guitar tone that you love, and then you get to that that second half of the record, and you're like, ah, it's not the right tone. Yeah. So it could take you ten songs to kind of get to that place where you're, you're cool with it, and then you go back to song one and you try the new tone out, and you're like, ah, oh, okay, this is what was missing. Totally. So, and I think that just takes more content. You know, you need to hear more more riffs and more notes and chords being played through the tone, and you experience that at different tempos as you go from song to song which allows you to kind of construct the ultimate guitar tone for what you're doing. Yeah, That's a really, really good point. That's another reason that I don't like to sit there and get carried away with a tone for too long, because I have also noticed the exact same thing, that within a few songs, it's going to evolve anyways. It's just going to naturally happen. I totally agree. Yeah, as you do a few more songs, you're going to add a few EQ changes, this and that, like tweak the tone, and it's going to get better more likely than not, it's going to get better just because you've been working with it, going through different material with it. So yeah, that's another reason why it's just kind of chasing your tail to sit there for too long on the same tone. But I've definitely done it yeah. and driven myself nuts. I think at the core of this is the fact that you have to really just trust your gut. You know you know when you're onto something and it's sounding good and you just got to go with it and move on because you, a certain amount of tail chasing usually can lead to sidestepping or detrimental results. But more importantly, you lose time. And unfortunately, in the professional world, time itself has a very high value as opposed to, you know, tweaking out the little last 0.2%. It's more important to be quick and to be able to make good decisions creatively so you can accomplish more. Yeah, there's definitely a point of diminishing return on just sitting there and tweaking forever. And I don't know if you guys do this at all, but for me, I definitely find in, in my process of getting a mix to where I want it to be, a lot of times I'll dump general settings across a bunch of mixes, right? And then as I'm working on one song or I go to another song and I'm doing this or I'm doing that and I start tweaking things differently from song to song, it kind of helps me in a way when like kind of going back to what you're saying about hearing a lot of different notes, a lot of different riffs, a lot of different tempos, you know, um, with certain settings of whatever it may be and, you know, an amp or a drum sample that you're using or whatever. As I go through different songs and I start tweaking things individually, I'll kind of get on to something with one track and then I'll, I'll go, oh, that sounds really cool. And I'll apply it to another track and I'll go, oh, maybe not. And as I sort of go from track to track to track doing that for a while, I start to kind of get a hold of general themes of what's working and what's not and start applying that to everything. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So let, let me ask you this, because we've been talking about amp sims, but I know 
personally that you like real amps. Yeah. You, you said that earlier. Right. So what is it you prefer about real amps and what is it you prefer about Sims? Like, how do you decide? Well, you know, there's things to like about both. A lot of times, you know, if I pull up an amp sim, uh, it might just be because it's easiest in, in reality. You know, it's just fast and it's easiest. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing something, you know, where I'm just maybe just doing a few songs for somebody, I'm probably going to use an amp sim because it's fast and it's easy. If I'm doing a whole record where you want everything sort of in a format so to speak uh, a lot of times I'll gravitate to spending the extra time and getting a really unique mic'd up you know amp sound you know it's also a matter of what you have in terms of selection for amps as well you know I mean if you have one head to use you know uh, you're gonna allow yourself some variety by trying out amp sims and you know because one head one sound isn't going to work for everything we all know that there might be some piece of gear that you gravitate towards a lot of the time but it's never going to work for everything and i'm lucky that i i do have a cool collection of heads you know um i'm a randall artist so i have like bunch of different Randall heads that are all really awesome and uh, do you have the modular ones I used to I actually got rid of it a while back but I, I used to have it and I used to have a bunch of modules for it and um, it was cool but it actually wasn't my favorite Randall head of all the ones I had I'll echo that because in Florida I've had experience with the modular ones and never quite felt as strongly about it as some of the other models, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Did you guys ever try the modded modular ones, for example, like Salvation Mods? Or? I, I actually did try some other companies' mods, and, you know, I don't know. There was, there was definitely some cool stuff. Part of it for me was the power amp. I wasn't crazy about the way the power amp sounded for it. It was almost too tubey. If you know what I mean, like there was too much sag, not enough mid range, you yeah. know that that type of thing. Just for my taste, you know, a lot of people that works for them, whatever. But uh, I like the really fast attack, and I like a lot of mid range. So it wasn't quite what I was looking for, I guess. But you know, I I kind of always gravitate towards the more martial kind of sound, you know, the more mid rangey, real growly, fast attack. And you know, I have like an EVH 5153 and you know love that yeah thing. it's great oh, that's a great head yeah it's especially for leads I really love it for leads it's awesome so you know I have some cool stuff to choose from you know I'll try different things and obviously kind of know after you've used your gear for a while what might work best for something you know so I'll pull up whatever feels right and you know a lot of it too is what mics you're using you know and obviously it doesn't affect it as much but even you know your preamp choice or mic pre-choices you know all that stuff what kind of mics and pre's are your favorites uh for miking a guitar you know a lot of times it's kind of an experiment for me and i'll actually sometimes i'll actually throw up like six mics on a cab all close mic'd and i'll kind of just run through all of them and move them all until I decide what I like. But, you know, I have definitely kind of gone back to the few that I always seem to narrow it down to and, and like. It always kind of seems to be mainly there's three mics. Sometimes I use different things, but most of the time I end up with, uh, you know, the SM57, a lot of times the 421, which are obviously two very obvious choices that, you know, are... Workhorses. Yeah, total workhorses. And then the third one I end up using a lot is a pretty inexpensive condenser mic, the Blue Baby Bottle. But for whatever reason, it sounds great on guitar cabs. It sounds good close? Yeah, right up on it. It has a really, really high SPL, and... Um, 
it's like 128 or something and it just it sounds great like it's got a ton of mid-range that a 57 and a 421 don't have it's got this sort of dark really strong mid-range and when you combine it with the 57 and the 421 for me i don't know about you guys i really don't like putting eq on distorted guitar tracks i feel like it it sounds super colored the second you put an eq on your guitar tracks so i try and get them right going in so i don't have to add it i definitely don't want to add anything that's for sure even when i cut i feel like i can really hear it so I kind of take those three microphones and I kind of almost use them as like a low, a low, mid, and high EQ in a way because you can get, you know, the lows from the 421, the mids from the baby bottle, and the highs from the 57 and just sort of finesse those three mics, you know, if I need more high or more low or whatever, you know. I have definitely had kicks and I know that some guys that I've worked with have also had kicks where it's like, if you need any EQ on these guitars, the guitars suck. Yep. <laughs> and I mean, these are on records that have been released that people like the tone on, so I stand by it. But I can't say that I've always liked that. Sometimes I find myself having to EQ guitars with great extremity, basically, to get them to sound good. But I do feel like with my own stuff, especially if it's me playing guitar or a guitar player that I think is really, really good, then I can take the time to achieve an ideal like that where you have a guitar tone that doesn't need EQ. But it's definitely not a rule that I subscribe to 100% of the time, but I definitely understand it because I have been through those kicks. It's a great feeling when you achieve it. Well, sure. I don't think that there's any rule that you can you know, subscribe to 100% of the time. Besides that, besides that there's no rule that you can... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that is the one rule that there is no rule. But, you know, I, I've found more often than not, for me, when I add... EQ to a distorted guitar, I can usually hear it, and it bothers me when I'm, you know, just just when I'm working on stuff. I don't know, maybe it's the EQ I'm using or whatever, but it, I, I just feel like I can hear it. It bugs the hell out of me. Yeah, that's interesting. I've had a couple records where I've really not EQ'd very much, but usually they're not metal records. Metal records for me, no matter how sick of a tone I feel like I get, I always just EQ mm-hmm. the living shit out of my guitars because yeah. there's too many things I hate right, right. that exist in nature. <laughs> I think that's another reason why I kind of always tend to um, do all the tracking with an amp sim and then go back and and reamp is so that I have the luxury that if I get a tone and I'm like I get three songs in and I'm like man this sounds like shit this is not working at all I can go back and kind of just reevaluate and and pull up a different tone and, and just reamp it again you know so do you sum those three mics together on the way in i do yeah so you're committing yeah yeah usually that's cool uh, we uh, advocate committing to tones quite yeah. a bit is that part of your methodology when recording committing to tones early and running with them i mean you definitely did just say that you like to have the safety net of being able to reamp right. which is just smart but do you like to commit? Uh, you know, I do, yeah. But yeah, I, I like to have those safety nets as well. In case, you know, there's this situation where I just hate something, I can go back and change it. I always allow myself those safety nets when I can. Speaking of that, I noticed that you started to add more and more orchestration and things like that. Is that something that you do or do you hire that out? I do it. Yeah, it's it's something that I have a really, really good time doing, man. I have so... That's like 
probably my favorite thing, man, is doing big arrangements. It's so, so fun just sitting there for, you know, however long. I could sit there for hours just adding string arrangements and adding all kinds of industrial post-apocalyptic, you know, bullshit in the songs. It's just so much fun. And you, I mean, it sounds really good. So you're doing a great job of it. And that's rare. Thank Most you. Most people absolutely fucking suck at it. But um, when, okay, so when you're working with that kind of stuff, uh, do you find that you need to commit with that? Or do you leave your virtual instruments on throughout the mix? Like, how do you, how do you have a super complex metal mix with all that extra stuff on there and not kill your CPU? Uh, I do is the answer, I guess. <laughs> um, I just do kill my CPU. I don't usually commit. Well, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll work with, you know, all the stuff actually running, all the instruments actually running until it's like, okay, things are starting to run pretty squirrely here. Let's, you know, let's take some of the more draining stuff out or whatever. And, you know, obviously, I, you know, you leave the MIDI tracks and stuff so that in the event that you do want to change something, you can pull it up and redo it or whatever. But yeah, then it's not until I start seeing the effects on the CPU that I'll print stuff. You know, a lot of times when I actually bounce a mix, the final mix still has the instruments running. I don't even print them then, you know? You must have a pretty powerful computer. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's powerful. It's not anything like, you know, crazy or anything, but it's definitely, it's a, it's a good computer. Do you have any tricks for getting that stuff to work in a mix or is it more about arrangement or a mixing thing? Like, how do you get it to work? Cause I know that that's one of the toughest things in mixing metal sure, is sure. getting strings to work. and It's really hard to find that balance where it's either totally burying everything or it's completely buried, you know, and there's it's really hard to get it to pop out. I find that, you know, uh, EQing can obviously help a lot and, you know, what mastering tools you're using can help a lot and stuff and uh, assuming you are mastering. I think you're right. I think a lot of it is the arrangement itself. You know, a lot of times, you know, for me, I'll have some really cool idea, maybe a string arrangement or some, maybe something really bombastic, a really big sort of percussive thing or something. And I'll drop it into a sound and it is sort of burying everything. And I, I have to make a decision in terms of the arrangement and go, well, you know what, as far as the mix is concerned, this isn't working. And, you know, you can either sit there and you can carve stuff out in, in the EQ, which sometimes I'll do, you know, or I'll just go, you know, I just need to cut this because it's, it's too much here. You know, in terms of the mix, it's too much. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like if the arrangement isn't good when it comes to adding orchestra or keyboard sounds that, well, synth sounds that full range, full spectrum. Uh, if the arrangement's not solid, it's going to sound like garbage. Yeah, yeah. And I've also kind of learned to write for um, the arrangements that I eventually am kind of envisioning. You know, as I'm coming up with a guitar part, you know, a lot of times I'm hearing the the strings and all that stuff before I even finish the guitar part, you know, and I kind of will write my guitar parts or I'll write the songs uh, with more open parts that breathe a little bit more for those sections, you know, so I can sit there for, you know, an hour just adding layer after layer after layer because it's fun, you know. I've always thought that EQing and arrangement are kind of 
the same they require the same mentality in that EQing is all about highlighting what's good and leaving space for what's good in other instruments. And I feel like arrangement is the exact same thing, is highlighting what's good while leaving space for what's good in all the other instruments so yeah. everything can work together. Yeah, definitely. So we have some questions from our audience that we'd like to go through before we wrap this up. You got time for a few questions? Yeah, totally. Cool. So we'll start with one from AJ Vienna, um, which is, how do you keep yourself from going office space if a particular riff or section of a song is giving you a really hard time? <laughs> uh, I don't. <laughs> Sometimes I do go <laughs> office space. I guess that's just something that comes with time, really. I don't know. I mean, I think the simple answer is stepping away from stuff. You know, for me, it's like Joey was saying, you know, um, I'll toy with something for a while, and I try not to sit there and, you know, maybe mess with a riff or whatever, anything. I try not to mess with anything until it makes me crazy. Once it starts making me crazy, it's time to step away. And, you know, I'll come back to it in, you know, whatever, a few hours in the next day and uh, work on something else, you know, and come back to it. Sounds reasonable. Um, well, Sean O'Shaughnessy is wondering, does your writing process involve recording the song as you write it for demo purposes, or do you normally write the song and then record it? I usually sit at my computer. I usually will have some sort of, you know, riff that I've I've noodled out and then from there I will sit at my computer with my guitar. I actually usually practice guitar sitting in front of my computer. And I do it half because it's it's easy to just plug into my console and pull up GTR or something and just sit there and noodle and half because as I come up with cool ideas I like to record them and you know I'll just continually do that I just keep recording ideas until I have a substantial chunk of something and then I'll start kind of looking at it with some perspective and kind of trying to come up with you know more parts for it or whatever but yeah for me I think recording is sort of integral to my songwriting process now. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't understand how you could possibly write super complex music that's modern as well without recording it at the same time. Too much going yeah. on. Like, music has gotten way complicated. Yeah, I don't know how I ever did. Pencil and paper. Well, yeah, there's that, <laughs> too. But Pencil and paper. You got to score it out. Like yeah, I don't. Is. I don't know how I. How I like when I think about it now. I don't know how I did that. You know, before I used to score things out before I had recording technology. Yeah, I would record it on a four track cassette recorder, and then I would literally score the shit out. It took so long. Yeah, I'm really glad that I went through that. Me too, man. Big yeah, time. There's definitely something to be said for doing it the old school, old school way. It like. I don't know, puts hair on your chest or something as a musician. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think that there's definitely values to to all that stuff that a lot of people will never know about. They'll never, they'll never understand it because, I mean, for me, I don't know about you guys, for me, like I said, my dad was a recording engineer and when he, like I, my first recording rigs were hand-me-downs of his stuff that he didn't use anymore. And when I was like... 13, I think. I got a Fostex E16 reel-to-reel machine with, with a 16-track console. And, you know, I had two hardware compressors and, like, a hardware multi-effects unit. And that's what I was making my first demos of my first songs on. And I'm really glad that I learned to 
uh, record that way and to write music that way. It definitely has values that I think to some degree have been lost. Yeah, I feel like the new technology is phenomenal when when oh, used course. properly, but when you're learning, it can be a total crutch. Mm-hmm. So Mr. James Alexander Boyd is wondering, do you take a similar approach to tracking guitar as Joey and many others, i.e. comping multiple takes, punching in for single eighth notes or sixteenth notes, etc.? I got to ask you on top of that question, too. <laughs> Have you ever sat down and recorded a guitar part one note at a time and then <laughs> const- construct it all together in the computer cuz I definitely have <laughs> to some degree I have I wouldn't I wouldn't say I've put together a whole riff one note at a time but I've definitely to answer to answer his question yes I do do that and a lot of the times it's for the sake of writing you know it's kind of like like what you're talking about you know with the pencil and paper sitting there and writing out the the music or whatever it's sort of a trial and error process a lot of times i'll actually record a big chunk of something and then i'll go oh you know what these two notes are a little behind let me punch in those two notes or let me drop in those two notes and then i'll do that and then i'll go you know what this might be cool with this note instead and rather than redoing the whole thing you just drop in that note and try it out you know and then before you know it maybe maybe like you know a third or half the notes have been changed you know that's awesome so it's not to make up for a lack of being able to play something that you are capable of writing but aren't capable of playing it's more of a creative tool to help you write the song in in the way that you want to write it or make the part sound in the way you want to make it sound generally yeah i mean of course you know i'm not i'm not sitting here saying that i'm some like badass and like you know i can play like everything that i record the way i record it you know like first try or whatever i generally try to only put things in my music that I'm capable of playing, obviously, which is, that's, that's actually something I would just like to take a second to (laughs) say is very important, people. Like, I think we need to get back to that to some degree. There's a responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like there's bands that are just getting ridiculous with this shit, you know, like, (laughs) you know, putting, putting shit in their songs is like, come on, you can't play that, you know? Yeah. So that's all right. Cause we get to be the cross arm dickhead (laughs) guitar player in the front row. When you go see him live, then you just look and shake your head when he screws up. And then the guy feels that he keeps messing. <laughs> but yeah, of course, you know, to some degree, of course, there's parts where, you know, it's like, well, this is, yeah, I'm not going to put something into, a, into a, a song that's like so absurd that I I can't even come close to playing it. But, you know, if it's like, oh man, this is tricky, it would be a lot easier to do it in a couple pieces. Of course, I'm going to do it that way. Well, you know, and sometimes I'm sure there's stuff that you write it because it's awesome to you and you may not have your muscle memory totally wrapped around it yet. Like you might need another couple months before it's ingrained to that level where you can just rip it out without warming up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's actually one of the, the cool benefits of all the technology and all the tools that we have now is it can actually make you a better player. You know, you can, you can come up with these things that actually push your playing. You know, you can't play it perfectly when you lay it down, but you'll get yourself there because you have to, you know, hopefully. (laughs) Well, yeah, not that's, that's the problem is a lot of people aren't getting themselves there, you know, or they're putting things down that it's like, they're not, you know, it's, it's one thing if, you know, if you're, 
80% there or something, and, you know, you use a little trickery to get it 100% of the way there. But it's another thing if you're not even half of the way there, and you just can't even come close to playing <laughs> it, you know, and you're not going to be able to come close to playing it. Yeah, it's like, get out of here, man. It takes a little bit of self-awareness, for sure. Yeah, sure. Um, so that brings up this question by Finn McKenty. And hello, Finn. Hello, we Finn. love you. This isn't. This is part of it's a statement. Part of it's a question. But he says tracking, so you need to do minimal editing, which is maybe just how to play guitar. But the idea being, <laughs> how do you get a sick tone without recording one note at a time? Uh, so I guess I guess he means like how like getting more performance oriented takes that still sound cool. I kind of feel like it's the reverse of that. I feel like that is the way to get it to sound cool. I feel like when you piece something together, it doesn't really have the nuances of playing guitar, you know? I think, it, yeah, it, try to compare it to something else. Like, um, let's say, maybe just cooking, for example. If Let's say you're creating a complicated dish and... Your question translated into cooking is, how do I create this complicated dish without waiting for this thing to marinate for two hours and without having to chill this for 40 minutes? Yeah. Like that, well, that's part of the process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or, it, or you could kind of look at it like, how do you get this to taste good without putting the ingredients in and then tasting them, you know, it's like, it's like throwing everything in and just hoping that it's, it's sounds right. You know, it's like, I feel like, um, there's just natural tendencies when you play something on the guitar that aren't going to be there if you do it one note at a time. So generally speaking, I try to play something and then if it needs, you know, this note or that note fixed, you go in and you do that. But it's it's going to get the personality of the part, you know, and make it sound like a guitar part by actually playing it. That makes perfect sense. I agree with that, too. It's like, how do you make it sound sick without playing it one note at a time? Well, play it right. And if you can't, then maybe it has to be constructed. I think as long as people are being responsible and they're doing it in a creative way and they're not doing it to make up for a lack of talent, then I think it's completely warranted because it's being creative and we're using our tools in new ways and people are starting to open up their minds to, you know, accepting those those uh, forms of art, I suppose. I agree. <laughs> you know, well, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it, in my opinion. Like, Yeah, I mean, you, a person that paints paintings with a brush and classic old oil paints or whatever the hell versus somebody who builds a robot spends six months building a robot that throws an egg at a piece of canvas those two are going to have completely different outlooks on art that's a great way to put it robot egg canvas here's a question from james zahn one problem that happens to me every time is that I get this killer guitar tone, and what's in the mix, it's all drowned out by the other instruments. So my question is, do you get your guitar tone while having other instruments going on, or do you commit to the tone and mix the other instruments based on the guitar tone? Um, usually, I find that the guitar tone is sort of the, the basis of my mixes. Um, that's kind of where I, where I start. Generally, I mean, when I'm working on my own music, for instance, you know, when I start out working on a demo of something, that kind of generally ends up being the same skeletal concepts in the final version. And, 
usually for me, it's drums and guitar that, you know, kind of lay that foundation. And it's kind of building a guitar tone that fits around the kick and snare primarily and the well, and of course the cymbals because of the high end sort of has to blend with the cymbals but um i guess to answer the question what i do like i said you know i work with the amp sim first so i kind of get a, a tone that is working for me and then i'll go back and i'll reamp stuff later so and, and you know sometimes if i have an amp sim tone that i like i'll actually stay with that but i guess to answer the question in the simplest way um i do generally go back and sort of do the guitar tones to fit for the the mix and for the song and i I don't know about you guys i don't usually find that it's my guitar tones that are that are getting drowned out if anything i usually find that they're like too dominant and i have to kind of back them off i actually found the same thing it's usually they end up swallowing the drums yeah yeah same here and i find that I have to then do things to the drums to get them to poke through the guitars. That's more my issue. Yeah. I think maybe part of the issue you may be having that I I find with a a lot of people that when their guitar tones aren't cutting through, it's usually kind of a lack of mid-range, it seems like. Yeah, I would agree with that. Or maybe it's down to the plane. Yeah, it could be it too. Uh, Maybe he's not picking hard enough. Uh, Maybe his left hand isn't like pronounced enough with the vibrato or whatever. I'm sure you've recorded guys where their hands aren't there. And so no matter what you do on the settings uh, of the amp or the amp sim, uh, there's going to be not enough note information coming through that tone to where it can stand out. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so do you ever use multiple amps, and how do you decide that you're going to be blending tones together? Like, what about a tone makes you say, I could use another amp on this? Generally speaking, I try and go with the simplest thing possible, you know, and I'll build from there. If the simplest thing possible isn't working, then I'll add to that as needed. But generally speaking, I start with whatever's easiest. You know, if the amp sim sounds great, I leave the amp sim. I'm done. You know, if I need to reamp, I reamp. And if one head sounds awesome with one microphone, then I'm done. If it needs more microphones, I add more microphones. If it needs uh, you know, if it's lacking some quality that I'm looking for or, you know, whatever, it's the, it's got something that I like about it, but it needs something else. That's when I will explore adding another head, adding another cab and throwing more mics up and, and trying blending. You know, generally speaking, how often do I blend numerous amps together in terms of miking live amps? I would say maybe, you know, I don't know, less than less than 20% of the time. But, you know, sometimes that's what it needs. And that's, you know, I've definitely done it. One way that you can get a better grasp on knowing when to utilize some sort of technique is knowing more about the results that come from those techniques. And I think if you spend more time experimenting, um, you know, a lot of people will go into the studio because they have to. You know, it's like we have a song to record, so let's go to the studio and record it. But what about going to the studio to experiment? That's something right. I used to do when I, when I started out. Um, always just hanging out in the studio, trying dumb stuff for no reason. Just, oh, I wonder what it would be like if you, I don't know, 
put a microphone over here for some reason. Yeah. Just what does that sound like? You know, and the more you try things, I think you start to build an inner understanding of like, oh, okay, that's what two amps like that's what two amps sounds like, or that's kind of the vibe you get from two amps. And then, you know, one day you'll be working on a song and you know, you're, you're not able to figure out what you need. A light will go off in your head. Oh, I remember when I hooked up two amps before I got this, this cool sound. Let's try that. Yeah. yeah. Basically it would be crafting your musical instincts. And I feel like that's very, very important because there's plenty of stuff that you might read about people doing. You'll think that the description that you read informs how, how it sounds, but it doesn't like, for instance, a lot of people think that quadding guitars sounds bigger and it can sometimes, but sometimes it can actually sound smaller depending on the situation in the same way that, some people think that you might get a richer tone with multiple amps, but in reality, yes, that's true sometimes, but sometimes you can get a really phasey, shitty tone, and it's not the answer. Yeah, so totally. by taking the time to actually experiment and putting this into your repertoire and developing your instincts further and you're just, you know, your bag of tricks, you'll know when something is appropriate and when it's not, and you won't just be gravitating towards it just because you read it somewhere because i definitely get a lot of clients who want to use multiple amps and quad stuff and all all that kind of stuff just because somebody they listened to did it not because it's the right thing for their music or because people think more is better you know it's cooler or whatever you know i mean the same thing is true with layering samples on drums sometimes you add too many it starts to sound smaller because of phasing and weird frequency masking issues yeah that's all really good advice uh that's another interesting thing bringing up phasing with guitars you know i feel like the less opportunity for phasing issues that you can bring into a scenario usually the better i agree with that yeah totally but you know you never know sometimes sometimes it's like you're saying you know just trying things and i can't tell you how many cool techniques and and different things i've stumbled on by accident you know and just and then you put it in your repertoire of things that you know you'll you'll think of when you you know need something to to grab and there's a part printed on a record i did where uh we were doing a lead and then we wanted the lead to change and i was gonna put like some filter on it or something and then as we were tracking guitars, there was a vocal mic on the other side of the room that was live. And I just soloed that and I went, wow, that sounds really cool. It's like 20 feet away from the amps. And uh, I just cranked the amps and just tracked through the vocal mic. And it just sounded cool. It was a total accident, you know? So you never know. Those happy accidents make rock and roll history lots of the totally. time, for sure. Yeah, Love absolutely. That. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you've been a great guest. Yes, definitely. It's been awesome. Cool, right on. Thank you, and uh, we'll talk to you again, hopefully, at some point. Awesome. I'd love to. Have a good one, man. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Creative Live, the world's best online classroom for creative professionals, with classes on songwriting, engineering, mixing, and mastering. Go to creativelive.com slash audio to start learning now. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is also brought to you by Ernie Ball, the world's premium manufacturer of guitar strings, bass strings, and guitar accessories. Go to www.ernieball.com to learn more. 
To ask us questions, suggest topics, and interact, visit URMAcademy.com and subscribe today.